Good morning. Luke 15, 1 to 2, and 11 through 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. In the middle of the second century, this would have been during the height of the Roman Empire, there was an 86-year-old man named Polycarp hiding in a friend's house. Um, his friends had urged him to flee the city because the Roman Empire was after him. But eventually, some soldiers found him, arrested him, and dragged him off to the stadium to stand public trial. What was his crime? He was a Christian. 
In fact, Polycarp was one of the most famous leaders in the early church. Now, the Roman governor uh, interrogated Polycarp in front of a whole crowd of people. His goal was to get Polycarp to deny Christ, to renounce his faith. And Polycarp refused to do it, which means that he was publicly executed. But what's really interesting is the way the Roman governor was trying to get Polycarp to renounce his faith. He told him, you have to say, away with the atheists. What's he talking about? Away with the atheists. He was talking about Christians. Did you know that for about the first 200 years or so of Christianity, the Romans called Christians atheists? The reason is because everything Christians were saying about God, about who God is and how you connect with God, it was so subversive, so revolutionary, so surprising and counterintuitive that in their minds it didn't even qualify as a religion. Christianity was in a completely different category. Now, fast forward 2,000 years. Uh, People are just as spiritually thirsty as they've ever been. And on top of that, there's been an explosion of spiritualities to choose from. It's kind of like trying to pick something to watch on Netflix. There are so many options. Spirituality is hot right now. But when people think of Christianity, most people today have a tendency to put Christianity in the category of religion. Especially been there, done that religion. I want to suggest that one of the main reasons that we think of Christianity in the category of same old, same old traditional religion is because we no longer see what the Romans saw, how subversive and revolutionary and surprising the gospel really is. We are uh, just began a series on the vision of Central West End Church. Our vision is to see a city made new by the gospel. So because the gospel is so foundational for everything else that we do here at the church, we're actually taking the first few weeks of this series just to look at the gospel. In this parable, this week, Jesus takes us to the very heartbeat of the gospel. Um, And because this parable is so familiar to us, one of the problems for us is that we have a tendency to see it as this kind of sappy, mawkish, sentimental story. Nothing could be further from the truth. The original audience, this parable would have been full of surprises for them. Uh, And when we have eyes to see, it's full of surprises for us too. So let's do two big things this morning. First, let's make sure we understand what's happening in this story. And secondly, let's draw out two big things that Jesus is showing us in this parable, okay? First, uh, we got to make sure that we understand the story. Um, And and we got to begin by this. Why does Jesus even tell this story in the first place? That we printed verses 1 and 2. They tell us, it says, The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. You see, in their eyes, these, quote, sinners, they represented everything that's wrong with the world. In the Pharisees and the religious leaders' eyes, these people should be condemned, but Jesus is welcoming them. It makes them furious, so they start complaining. Jesus tells this story as a response to their complaint. Basically, he's saying, why, yes, in fact, I do welcome sinners, Let me tell you a story about a man who welcomes sinners. It's about a father with two sons. And when the younger son goes to his father and says, 
Father, give me my share of the property. Jesus is already messing with his audience. In that culture, this would have been deeply shocking. Why? Kenneth Bailey was a New Testament scholar and an expert in Middle Eastern culture. He spent most of his life living in the Middle East. And he says that once he actually spent 15 years of his life going all around the Middle East asking people um, what would happen if a son asked for his inheritance while the father was still alive. And he says that almost without fail, the conversation always went something like this. Has anyone in your village ever made such a request? Never. Could anyone in your village ever make such a request? Impossible. What would happen if someone made such a request? Well, the father would beat them and drive them from the house. Why? Because the request means they want their father to die. Friends, this is not a son who just wants to go off and and make good in the big city. This is a child who is so relationally alienated from his father that he basically tells him, I wish you were dead. He is publicly shaming and rejecting and abusing his father. And any respectable father in that shame honor culture, Middle Eastern society, would have been expected to beat the son and drive him from the house. But that is not what this father does. What does he do? Surprise number one, he gives his son the share of the property. We have to pause here for just a minute because at this point in the story, understand, you know, the son hasn't left home. The son hasn't squandered all the money. The son hasn't wound up in a far country yet. And yet, at this point in the story, the son is already lost. He just doesn't realize it. But the father does realize it. And that's why he lets him take the money and run. The father knows that one of the only ways for the son to come to a realization of just how lost he really is is if the father lets him go and lets the circumstances of his life help him see how lost he really is. And don't you know, a lot of times God will do the same thing for you. He will let you run by letting you run your life. He will let the circumstances of your life help you come to a realization of just how lost, just how far away from him you really are. You know, this son had to get physically far away from the father in order to understand how relationally far away he had always been from the father in the first place. Now, we're going to come back to that, but... For now, let's get back to the story. The son takes the money, he wanders off into a far country, and he spends all of the money, and he ends up in a pigsty. And it's at this point in his life, when he's down in the muck and the mud, his life is falling apart, and he comes up with a plan. And a lot of people will look at this part of the story where it says that the son came to himself, and they'll say, aha, repentance. And it is, but only kind of. Because look at what the son's doing. You know, what's this brilliant plan he comes up with? What's his goal? He, uh, his plan is to go home and, and confess his sins. Okay, that's good. But what's the real goal of this confession? He's going to say to the father, treat me like one of your hired servants. That the, the goal that this son has, it's not the restoration of his relationship with the father. It's about paying the father back the money that the son lost. You know, in that culture, uh, for a Jewish son to lose the inheritance, 
to Gentiles nonetheless. That was one of the most shameful things that could possibly happen. But if you were somehow able to pay back the money, then you would be able to restore your status in the community. That's the plan that this son has in mind. That's the goal that he has in mind. It's not about restoring his relationship with the father. It's about restoring his status in the community. It's about paying the money back because to be a hired servant, that's what he's requesting, means that he wouldn't be living at home. He would have his own place in town. He'd still have control over his life. It's not about restoring the relationship. It's about paying back the money, which means it's still about this son having control over his life, which means he's still lost. So he goes back home, and surprise number two, as soon as he turns up on the edge of town, he sees his father running toward him. The father wraps his arms around him, showers him with kisses, puts a robe on his back, a ring on his finger, shoes on his feet, tells the servants to kill the fattened calf, prepare a massive banquet. The whole village is invited. The father is basically saying, son, I don't care about your plan. I don't care about the money. I just want you back. I'm just glad to have you back. He, he wraps his arms around him and welcomes him back with love. You see, friends, Jesus is telling us that this father it acts the same way that the religious leaders are so upset with Jesus for the way that he's acting. And that's why Jesus tells this story. But, but you notice, because of that, this is not the end of the story. As we continue on, you notice, how does the older brother respond? When the older brother hears what's going on, he sees the party, he sees everything that's happening, he refuses to go into the party. Now, again, in this culture, shame on our culture, uh, with Middle Eastern patriarchs like this, to refuse to go into the party like this, for a son to treat his father like this in public was, again, he was publicly shaming, rejecting, and abusing his father. And yet, surprise number three, this father is willing to endure the rejection of his older son and the public shame of the whole village in order to go out and plead with his son to come into the party. He's basically, and he doesn't even call him my son. Literally, he calls him my child. My child. I, I, any other father would publicly disown you for the way that you've just treated me, but I don't care about that. I want you in my house. I want you with me. I want you with your brother. It's an amazing story. It's full of surprises for Jesus' original hearers. And when we understand the story, it should be full of surprises for us too. But that's the story. But what is Jesus actually showing us with this story? Well, there are really two big things that Jesus is showing us. And the first one is this. Jesus is showing us the true nature of sin. He's showing us the true nature of sin. In this story, Jesus, he literally overturns our understanding of sin because Jesus is giving us a picture of sin in which sin is not defined behaviorally. It's defined by your relational attitude toward God. One of the most brilliant things about this story is that Jesus is giving us a picture of a family in which there is not just one, but two sons who are lost. And notice, each of these sons is behaving very differently from the other. So for instance, look at the younger brother. He's the classic rule breaker, the classic rebel. You know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. He's the classic rule breaker. But here's the question, why is he breaking the rules? What is he after? Well, he's basically after the same things that all of us are after. Happiness, fulfillment, 
meaning, significance, joy, pleasure. Those are wonderful things. God created us to enjoy those things. But the problem with this younger son is that he wants the gifts and the blessings of of the father, but he's not actually interested in a relationship with the father. So he takes the money, he runs, he goes off into a far country. He's seeking these wonderful things apart from God. One of the main things Jesus is showing us here is that being lost means seeking happiness in something other than God. Being lost means seeking happiness in something other than God. And that's actually a pretty good definition of sin. You know, in our culture, we really struggle with that concept. We think, oh, sin. You know, that's when you have this arbitrary list of rules and behaviors. And if you obey the rules, ooh, you're righteous. But if you break the rules, uh uh-oh, sinner. Jesus is showing us that that is way too simplistic a view of sin. That sin is not just doing bad things. Sin is seeking really good things apart from God. Because there's nothing wrong with happiness, fulfillment, meaning, or joy. There's nothing wrong with those things. In fact, God created you to enjoy those things. He wants to give you those things. The problem is that we want the gifts rather than we want the giver. That's the real problem. Or we could say it like this. Sin is relational breakdown with God long before it ever results in behavioral disobedience of God. Sin is relational breakdown with God long before it ever becomes behavioral disobedience um, of God. That's one of the main things Jesus is showing us here. And when we realize this, you all of a sudden realize that um, the younger brother is not the only one in this story who's lost. So look at the older brother. In verse 29, he tells the father, look, and by the way, it's never a good sign when you begin a conversation with one of your parents by saying, look. (laughs) He says, look, these many years I have served you, and literally the word is slave. He's saying, look, I've been slaving you all these years, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. This son, he is seething with anger and hostility towards the father. What's going on with him? On the one hand, he never left home. He never wandered off into a far country. He never disobeyed any of the father's commands. Behaviorally, he's perfect. Relationally, he's a mess. Relationally, he's just as alienated from the father because all of those things he's doing, he's not doing them for the father. He's doing them for himself because what's he after? What's he looking for? Same things as the younger brother. Happiness, fulfillment, meaning, joy, pleasure, all those kinds of things. But instead of um, seeking those things by leaving home and disobeying the father, the older brother is seeking those things by staying home and and obeying the father, which means he's just like the younger brother. He, He never left home, but relationally, this brother is in a far country too. Both of these sons, Jesus is showing us, both of them are far away from the father. They're both lost. They're just lost in different ways. 
The younger brother is lost in his um, badness and his rule breaking, but the older brother is lost in his goodness and his rule keeping. Both of these ways are just as alienated from God because both of these ways are ways of keeping control over our life. Both of these ways are ways of seeking happiness in something other than God. Now, let's bring this into our world. Both of these ways uh, correspond to the main ways in our world that we look for happiness and fulfillment in our lives. One of them is the traditional way. That's the older brother. You could call this the the way of self-discipline. Traditional cultures say that the way you get an identity, the way you find happiness and meaning and fulfillment in the world is you have to uh, accept the role that is handed to you by society that you have to sacrifice your own individual desires for the sake of the larger community. That's the traditional way. But the other way of looking for happiness and fulfillment in our world is what we could call the modern way. That's the younger brother. We could call that the way of self-discovery. The way of self-discovery says that the way you get an identity in this world is is not by um, accepting the role that's handed to you by society. It says you have to reject the role that's handed to you by society, and instead, you have to be true to your authentic self. You reject the role handed to your society. You reject those demands in, in, in order to fulfill your own individual desires. Now, it doesn't take much reflection to see that both of those ways are deeply at odds with each other in our world, aren't they? You know, the, uh, the traditional older brother, self-disciplined types, they have a tendency to say, you know, it's those liberal, irresponsible people who have no respect for morality. They're what's wrong with the world, while it's the younger, uh, younger brother, modern, self-discovery types who have a tendency to say, you know, it's those conservative, bigoted, religious people. They're what's wrong with the world. Jesus is saying both of those ways are wrong. He's saying both of those ways are alienated from God because both of those are ways of seeking to keep control over our own lives and basically be our own Lord and Savior. Jesus is giving us a whole new window into the true nature of sin, that it's not defined behaviorally, it's defined by your relational attitude to God. That you can be just as lost in your goodness and your morality as you can be lost in your badness and your immorality. Do you find that a little bit surprising? Perhaps even shocking? Jesus presses us even further from there. We've just looked at the true nature of sin, but the other big thing that Jesus shows us in this parable is the true heart of God. Because here's the question, and everyone in Jesus's original audience would have felt the weight of this. These sons had publicly shamed, abused, and rejected the father. And so the big question that everybody in that audience would have been wrestling with is, how's the father going to respond? And everyone in in Jesus' original audience knew the answer. The father is supposed to beat the sons and drive them from the house. That's the way he's supposed to respond. And when we understand that, then we're beginning to understand how we're supposed to be wrestling with this story too. Because the big question for us should be, how is God supposed to respond? I want to suggest that it's at this point that all of us, whether we kind of identify more with the traditional or the modern way, both the self-discipline and the self-discovery way, it's at this point that we all have a tendency to kind of lean towards the older brother in our approach to this. And here's what I mean. Uh, Jonathan Haidt 
is a moral psychologist at New York University. And in one of his books, he talks about something called proportionality, which is one of the earliest moral intuitions that develops in human beings. What is proportionality? Well, he says, imagine that you want to divide 12 jelly beans between four kids. What's the fair way to do it? Well, each of them get three, three jelly beans for each of the kids because that's what's fair, right? Proportionality. Now, imagine that those jelly beans are a, a reward for cleaning up the classroom. If, if one of the kids does most of the work and the other three goof off and do hardly any work, is it still fair to give each of the kids three jelly beans? Our sense of proportionality says, no way. When it comes to our attitude towards God, we have a tendency to look at God and our sense of proportionality says, well, God should reward the good people and punish the bad people because that's what's fair to people. In this parable, Jesus is pressing on us to get us to see that the real question is not what's fair to people, but what's fair to the Father? What's fair to God? Both of these sons shamed, abused, and rejected the father. What's fair? It's at this point, and precisely at this point, that Jesus has the biggest surprise of all for us. You know, I mentioned just a bit ago that in that culture, for a Jewish son to lose the family inheritance to Gentiles was one of the most shameful things that could possibly happen. What I didn't mention is that Jewish society back then had a ritual for dealing with these kinds of offenders. What they would do is they would take an earthenware jar, they would fill it with burned nuts and corn, and then they would bring it out in front of the offending individual. They would break the jar, and they would say, so-and-so is cut off from his people. So here's the, the younger son, all right? He shows up on the outskirts of town, and what would have happened is a mob would have started to form, getting ready to perform the ritual. And so here's the son. He shows up, mob starts to form. There would have been jeering, taunting, verbal abuse, possibly even physical violence. This son knows that, that the only way he's going to get home is to run the gauntlet of this mob. Can you imagine what that would have felt like if you were the son? You show up on the edge of town. You know, you know, they're getting ready to perform the ritual. You know, well, I'm in for it now. And you know that, that your only hope is that if you can possibly survive the scorn, abuse, shame, humiliation, and violence of the mob, that you might somehow find your way to make it home and present your brilliant plan to your father about how you're going to pay him back. The next thing you know, to your amazement, you're standing there and you see your father running at you. Now, think about this for just a moment. If you had shamed and violated not just your family, but the whole community like this, what do you expect is going to happen when your father gets to you? You're thinking, he's going to beat me silly. Can you imagine the fear? Can you imagine the terror? And most of all, can you imagine the, the bitter taste of despair knowing I brought this all upon myself? I brought it all upon myself. I deserve this. But as the father gets closer, <laughs> you notice something. The look in his eyes, it's not anger, it's something else. Unbeknownst to you, ever since you left home, every single day, this father has been watching for you, 
looking for you, standing on the porch, scanning the horizon, saying, where is my child? Oh, where is my child? This is a watching father. And as soon as the father sees the son, the watching father turns into a running father. But he is not running to beat you. He's running to rescue you. Friends, do you realize what this is showing us? The only way that this son could get back home would be to run the gauntlet of this mob, to run the gauntlet of scorn, abuse, shame, humiliation, and violence, and somehow find his way back home. And even if he was able to make it through that, when he arrived home, he would still be nothing better than a servant. And yet this father, instead of making the son run the gauntlet, the father runs the gauntlet. The father runs the the mob. The father runs and endures all of the, the scorn, abuse, shame, humiliation, and violence, so the son doesn't have to. It is a public restoration of the son for the whole village to see. And in order to do it, the father had to endure the shame and the abuse and the humiliation and the violence of the mob so that the son wouldn't have to. Do you, are you beginning to see what Jesus is showing us here? Everything he's showing us about this father is just the merest hint of what Jesus did to pursue you and come running after you. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ ran the ultimate gauntlet. He endured the, uh, the taunting and the jeering and the mocking of the mob. Instead of a robe on his back, they, they stripped Jesus naked. Instead of shoes, they nailed his feet to a cross. Instead of a kiss, he got a curse. Instead of seeing his father running towards him in love, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Instead of feeling the arms of the father wrapped around him in love, he got a spear in his side. Do you realize what this is, friends? The gospel, the heart of the gospel is grace. This is not, you know, there is no brilliant plan. There is no paying God back. That's traditional religion. There is no paying God back. This is a God who does everything to win you back. That's the gospel, and that's grace, and that is the heart of the gospel. It's grace. There's nothing more surprising than grace, nothing more counterintuitive than grace, nothing more shocking than grace, and really, there's nothing costlier than grace. Because do you know what grace really is? I mean, look at the younger brother. Grace means that you can never be so bad that God is inclined to reject you. Isn't that wonderful? You can never be so bad that God is inclined to reject you. But if that's true, then by definition, look at the older brother, you can never be so good that God is obliged to accept you. Grace means that you can never be so bad that God is inclined to reject you, but by definition, that means you can never be so good that God is obliged to accept you. Friends, that's the gospel because that's grace. That's why the Romans called the Christians atheists. They had no category for this. Our world still has no category for this. And as we close, let me offer you just a couple of thoughts by way of application. First, Grace means that you rest in a new identity. Grace means you rest in a new identity. You know, traditional culture tells you that the way you get an identity is through sacrifice and self-discipline. Modern culture says the way you get an identity is through freedom and liberation and self-discovery. But if you notice, both of those identities, they're both self-created identities because both of them, they depend on your performance. 
They depend, it's all up to you. Self-created identity. The gospel is the only identity available to you in this world that is not a created identity. It's an identity that is bestowed upon you by the love of God. That is an unassailable identity. You know, in this world, people will treat you like the mob in that village, right? They'll criticize you, condemn you, trash talk you, abuse you, try to control you. And if your security and significance in this world depend on your performance, then when those things happen to you, they will destroy you. They will crush you. And, and understand something. Um, we should, those things should hurt us. But if you have an identity and a security and a significance that is bestowed upon you by the horizon-scanning, gauntlet-running love of Jesus then yeah, those things are going to hurt you, but they can't destroy you. They can't crush you. It's like the arms of the father wrapped around the son, protecting him from the mob, saying, this is my child, back off. You rest in a new identity. But second, grace means that you reach out to the margins. You know, um, uh, Jesus was constantly scanning the horizon for people. He was constantly pursuing people. If you've begun to experience this horizon-scanning, gauntlet-running love of Jesus, then it should begin to transform you into the same kind of person that's constantly watching out for other people and constantly pursuing other people. That's what Jesus did. He was constantly scanning the horizon, constantly running out, reaching out, and pursuing other people, running out to them, running the gauntlet to go, to go find them and seek them. So in this story, you notice the father, he goes out after both the younger brother and the older brother. Both, both the, the, um, the younger brother, self-discovery, immoral types, and the older brother, traditional, really religious, really good moral types. He's reaching out to both of them. He's saying, that's what I'm like. I welcome all people. The more that kind of love comes into your life, it should transform you into the same kind of person as well. If there are people in this world that you're inclined to look at them and say, well, those people are everything that's wrong with the world. If you're inclined to judge or condemn or criticize or look down your nose at such people, and understand this does not mean that we don't hold people accountable, and it doesn't mean that we don't work for justice in this world. Of course we do. It does mean we refuse to condemn people. It means that, that we pursue people in love rather than reject them in condemnation. Friends, uh, when you have begun to experience this horizon-scanning, gauntlet-running love of Jesus, let that love wrap its arms around you. Let it usher you into the very heart of God. Jesus is saying, I'm like the Father. Let me love you, and I will make you like that Father too. Let's pray.